In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, much like last week's readings, tonight's readings give us an opportunity to return back again um, to a theme that I noted last week for us, which is one minute Paul is able to describe this incredible experience he's had being called up to the third heaven, but yet that passage is then immediately followed by Paul's report of the thorn in his flesh that he asked God to deliver him from, and God never did deliver him from it, and so he spent his life being constantly reminded of that thorn in the flesh. And so I, I mentioned as part of last week's sermon that that opportunity to reflect on the kind of the highest, highest of heights of experience, Christian experience, but yet also coupled perhaps with the kind of lowest of lows, right, that ongoing thorn in the flesh, whatever it was for Paul. And I couldn't help but think about that again this week with our readings. Um, great selection of readings um, and, and uh, wedged there in between them is this famous uh, text from Ephesians, which is Everyone often knows it's the longest sentence in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament because it's all one sentence in the Greek. And so as I began to reflect on what to think about and preach on this evening, I, I thought again about like that joy that David had dancing before the ark of God. Now, his wife Michael wasn't real keen on it, but we'll, we'll leave her aside and just think about here's David acting inappropriately supposedly as he danced and celebrated the return of God's presence back to the Israelite people. That's, that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a, symbol, it's a symbol of God's presence. He dwells between the cherubim, the, the commandments, and Aaron's rod are in, in that uh, Ark. And so it's, it's to, to have the Ark is to have God in your presence. And so, of course, David is dancing. And I, and I say, of course, not because I might be the one who would have danced before. I Knowing my personality, I would have been the guy on the side a little more discreet, but, but someone would have been dancing in front of it, and I would have enjoyed it. And, uh, and, uh, and so we think about that, that celebration of the return of God back into the midst of the Old Testament people, the Israelites, and David, the king who shouldn't be celebrating, yet celebrates none the same. Such a great example of humility, in fact, that Dante depicts it, one of three images in uh, the Purgatorio of what humility actually is. And one of those images is David dancing before the ark. But then getting to the gospel, we go from the elation of the presence of God and dancing before his presence to the sadness of thinking about the death of John the Baptist. For what? Well, for speaking the truth, right? And, and mostly because a man overpromised what he would do if someone asked him. Now, if, you, if we think about that text, like, I'll give you upwards of half my kingdom. And then she goes out and says, what, Mom, what should I do? Oh, ask for John's head. I probably would have been like, yeah, but, but half the kingdom, that's pretty good. You know what I mean? I would, have, I would have thought there would be some bargaining there, maybe, some room to think about. No, I mean, I've been promised this great thing, and, but Mom wants the head of John the Baptist. So sure enough, even though the king regrets it, John is killed. And so, again, we have the, the heights of the celebration of the presence of God and then the low of the forerunner of Jesus Christ being killed for ostensibly no reason other than, A, telling the truth, and B, because a man overpromised what he was willing to do to, to demonstrate his love. But there in the middle is Ephesians. 
And it would be easy to, again, like last week, think of these kind of pendulum swings and, and then wonder, what's in between those things? Is that, is that what my life has to, has to be like? You know, is it, is it either uh, everything's going well or good and I'm, it, it's celebratory, things are going great, and then next thing you know, things aren't going so great again and you're on the opposite end of the pendulum. You know, is it, is it like places like Minnesota where it's either cold or hot and rarely in between or something like that, our experience there in Minnesota? And then here in the middle is Ephesians. And Paul, again, in this well-known text to the church at Ephesus, uh, not only writes a very long sentence, but packs so much in to this sentence that he, he packs so much theology into uh, this text that it just is, is just rich. It's just so much to, to try to take in. And so between dancing and death, we have the truth here of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, commentators have noted that this text is Trinitarian in its shape. It kind of shows what God has done through the person of Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? But I like what one commentator said. He wrote, this section is Eucharistic. That is, it is a thanksgiving expressed in the language of worship and prayer, right? Because Eucharist means to, to, to give thanks. And so this is a thanksgiving expressed in the language of worship and prayer. And the focus of this praise and thanksgiving is what God has done in Christ, right? So let's just back up for a moment and think this isn't just a didactic teaching section. This is worship. Matter of fact, other commentators think that this, this is kind of the pattern for Christian creeds. That when those who, who assembled the creed sat down, they said, how could we improve upon Ephesians, right? Where you have the Trinitarian structure of what the persons have done. And I know you notice this, but when we confess the Nicene Creed every week, you, you notice it's God the Father first, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and those things connected to him, including the church, right? And last judgment. So, so again, the focus, though, is what... God has done in Christ. So a way to think about it might be, even though it's got the Father and the Spirit on, on either end, there in the center is Christ. There in the center is Jesus. Thus, verse 3 in particular is the key around which the entire passage revolves. Right? And that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So though it's talking about what God the Father has done, he's done it in the person of Christ, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this key passage, right, everything revolves around it, which is why this passage is written in the form of a Jewish blessing, denoting the bestowal of a specific material good. This is a, this is a common Jewish prayer of thanksgiving, and those prayers were always specific about a good that had been given to the people. And oftentimes, a material good. And how much more appropriate to think of Jesus Christ incarnate, the material person of the Son being given to Israel and to the people that, and to what we now think of as the church, to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And so we have this section of worship and praise, and Jesus is the key to it all, and it's all hovering around him, and it's a blessing of what God has done. And so it leads us to ask the question, well, what has God done? Again, between dancing and death, what has God done to help us navigate those highs and those lows of life? Well, I'm going to note just three things tonight. More probably could be said, but three seemed to be enough. Um, first, he's elected us to holiness. He's elected us to holiness. Verse 4, 
He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so you have to believe in election because it's biblical. (laughs) Now, you can believe in different kinds of election. Some of it's biblical, maybe some of it's not. I'll let you judge that. But the point is, is we here, we see that we've been chosen, elected through Jesus before the foundation of the world, what? That we should be holy and blameless. Not that we just are Christians, but that we are to be holy and blameless believers. The early church father Jerome wrote, quote, He himself has made us saints, but we are called to remain saints. I like that. I, I, I think that's a great quote, right? I mean, Paul addresses the Christians as saints, and I've always thought, like, we're saints, we're holy, at least when viewed through the work of Jesus Christ, we are holy people. But as Jerome says, we are called to remain saints. And then he says, a saint is one who lives in faith, is unblemished, and leads a blameless life. So perhaps not easy, but that's what we've been called to, and we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. And, and in fact, we are holy and blameless people through the work of Jesus Christ. I've preached on that before, that this isn't just God looking at us and like, has Greg done enough to be considered holy and blameless? No, he, he sees me, he sees you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so because Jesus is holy, we are holy. But again, in the words of Jerome, we are called to remain saints. We are still called to do our part, and not because we're Pelagian, but because that's what the Scripture teaches, that we cannot be passive about our spiritual growth, that we cannot take this holiness that is given us and that we are called to be and muck it up. Right? Holiness at its root, at least from the Old Testament on, means something that's been set apart. We are set apart people. And so we should not and cannot mess that up. We have a job to do as believers. Yes, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but our job is to live into the reality of what we are. Elected, holy, and blameless people. John Chrysostom says, quote, the sanctified life is not the effect of our labors or achievements, but of God's love. And it is, in fact, the effect of God's love, not our labors and achievements, but that doesn't mean that we should not labor to achieve holiness, right? We should not, we, we should not take it for granted that I can just, again, sit back and kind of experience God's holiness or be declared holy without making the effort to live that holiness out, to, to demonstrate my set-apartness, to demonstrate my election to be a holy and blameless person. So again, we would be Pelagian, we would be pulling our bootstraps up and making this happen ourselves. That's not what we're supposed to do. But again, we are becoming what we already are through God's election. So again, between dancing and death first, we are called to be holy. And we are set apart to be holy. And so therefore, we are God's holy people. Which is why in the creed, we can confess that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right? When we say holy there, we don't have to feel ashamed or embarrassed and think, well, sort of. Or when we say one, we don't have to feel the same way. No, we are one holy Catholic and apostolic. We are those things in the person of Jesus Christ. And so again, we are God's elect and we've been elected to be holy people. So let us remain saints. Second, the passage tells us that we have been predestined for adoption. 
predestined for adoption. Uh, the Kims can't be here tonight, but Mary Beth is here. We have folks in our parish who understand the joys of adoption. We have kids in this parish who understand the joys of being adopted, right? But all of us, theologically speaking, are adopted children. We have been adopted by God. So although we might not be able to have that earthly experience of adoption, we are adopted. And adoption means that we enjoy the same status as a biological child, so much so that we are co-heirs with Christ. So over in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says we are co-heirs with Christ. In other words, it makes sense that Jesus, as God's only begotten son, would be his heir. But through our adoption, we are equal to Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of God, and therefore it makes us co-heirs. Again, that is what adoption means. That's what it means to speak of it legally and in terms today, and it's also the exact same meaning theologically. Again, we enjoy the same status as if we were God's biological children, which I realize is stretching those words to a breaking point. But again, that makes us co-heirs. And we are adopted, it says, in love. That is, the foundation of our adoption is God's love and goodness. It's not anything in our nature. Right? I mean, it is, it is common story. You, you hear people who have adopted, and it, it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be. I mean, it sounds terrible, but, and I, and I, but I mean, these are stories I've heard. Is, is something, you know, someone's adopted, and then the, the child is just, you know, the, the family didn't know the problems the child may have had, especially oftentimes coming from the former Eastern Bloc in Europe, and they didn't know, and life became really difficult for them. And, and, uh, but yet, they didn't, they didn't do it because they they went shopping for a child, they, they fell in love with the child, and they adopted that child, and they worked through those difficult things. And it's the same with God. He, he didn't decide or pick us based on some merit of our own, but in love, he adopts us. So that, again, the foundation of our adoption is simply God's love. It's not our worthiness, even though God made us, and therefore we are worthy. It's nothing that's native to us in our nature, but God is just simply acting in love. So again, between dancing and death, there's the fact that God has chosen us and elected us to be holy, but that we are also sons and daughters of God. I appreciate the kind of inflection that Wale gave this reading from Ephesians tonight, kind of showing the fact that this is good news, right? That this, Jesus is talking about these great things that have happened to us, right? That we are holy, that we are God's children adopted by him. And so it's God's pleasure to adopt us because he's done it in love. Again, not out of obligation, but in love, and therefore he takes great pleasure, Paul says, in adopting us. And then lastly, God has redeemed us. Jesus, in particular, has redeemed us through his blood. And so this is the literal good news, right? This is Jesus died for us, and, and through his blood, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Paul says. So God has redeemed us through his blood, which results in the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's great news, is it not? I mean, that your trespasses, your sins are forgiven. Because if they weren't, if Jesus hadn't shed his blood and your sins could not be forgiving, forgiven, what a terrible life. Because our destination would be one thing and one thing only without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we also, Paul says, obtain our inheritance, right? So that, in other words, again, as children adopted by God, 
we retain, obtain rather, our inheritance through his blood, that we get the riches that God has promised to us. Again, this is where the text becomes a bit eschatological and those promises that are made about the future with God and being in the presence of God, all of those things are made possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes and seals it and guarantees it. Recently, I don't know if it was, I think it was Nathaniel, we were, I was talking, I don't even know how it came up, talking about how mortgages work, right? You know, and basic, I mean, those with student loans, it's similar, right? Basically, at the end of the day, a mortgage is this, someone with money gives it to you to make more money. And that thing they gave you money to own, you tell them that if you fail to make that payment, they can come and take it away from you. Right? I mean, the guarantee that I'm going to pay my mortgage is the house I don't own. <laughs> right? That's the point. Like, the house I don't own becomes the thing the bank can come and take. Because who actually owns it? Well, the bank, to some percentage. Right? I own a little bit. I think I'm still in the single digits, but I'm, I'm, I'm owning some portion of it. And so, the Holy Spirit comes and he seals and guarantees these things just like a bank does. So that when you enter into a contract, the bank is saying, no, there's going to be the money there. You don't have to just trust this person's word. We have the money. They are approved. We seal this. We guarantee this. I got excited the other day. My diploma finally arrived in the mail from Rome, from my doctorate back in November. And it took a lot to get that piece of paper to me. It took... It took effort here requesting it. It took a transfer of some funds to pay the fee. And then it took a friend, a monk friend who was in Rome to pick it up because they won't mail it. They'll only let someone pick it up. And they weren't being real quick about it. And Father Elijah was leaving Rome on Wednesday uh, a couple weeks ago. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if he's not there, to and he's not going back next year. And I thought to myself, if he's not there to pick it up, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to have Sarah stop by San Anselmo's next month and pick it up when she's in Rome. And it's the last thing Sarah wants to do. And so, but, I, but he was able to pick it up literally on his way to the airport. Nicest guy imaginable. Too big to carry with all of other stuff. Stopped by like a mailboxes, et cetera, or the Roman equivalent of it. Shipped that to me. It arrived. And I opened it up, and there it was. And what did it have on the bottom center, as degrees often do, a seal. And there was that seal. And with kind of, without that seal, you know, you think like anyone could print that off. But the moment there's a seal on it, it gives it that legitimacy. It gives it that fact that this is the real thing. And so the Holy Spirit seals these things for us, that he, he seals the fact that we've been elected to holiness, that we are adopted children of God, and that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, there's so much more that we could talk about tonight, but I, what, what I mostly want you to hear is that this is the good news. This is, this is where we live as believers. So although one day we may be dancing in celebration and worship of God, and yet the next day life could be going terrible again, and hopefully we're not being martyred, but yet that is a reality for many Christians in the world today, that those things are not just bookends, and you wonder where it's going to swing every day, but here in the middle, here from Ephesians 1, we hear these truths that are always true. These realities of who we are. Another church father says this, the riches of God are heaped upon us and that he makes us something better than we were at the beginning of our existence. So no matter where we're at on our journey, no matter how good things are going, how difficult things might be, 
Let us bear in mind the truths of Ephesians 1. Let us remember that God is and has, in fact, made us something better than we were at the beginning of our existence. And let us celebrate that. Let us, let us give thanks in the sense of, of, of making Eucharist, just like this prayer from Ephesians 1. Let us bless God in the sense of this uh, text from Ephesians 1. And let us keep these truths first, first and foremost in front of ourselves. So no matter what we're going through, we can keep throwing ourselves back on the goodness of God, giving him praise and thanks and blessing. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.